News from the front is almost a quaint idea these days. The U.S. is at war in a couple of countries, but that's not even top ten among the issues I see on my Twitter feed or the website of my newspaper. It was not always thus. News media has been as integral a part of warfare as any other element since the invention of movable type. In the newspaper era, dispatches covering troop movements became a complicating element in the way nation-states approached war. The human costs of war and the reportage thereof became a sacrosanct element of warfare. It changed the calculus of how kings and politicians make the case for war when that cost would come under widespread scrutiny. This reached its acme during the Vietnam War when televisions began to bring the vivid reality of the war into the American living room on a nightly basis. Reporters genuinely changed the public appetite for that war just by sharing the stories of it, and it is presumably in the context of watching Vietnam through the eyes of skeptical reporters that Marie Colvin grew up and formed the core of her personality. She's the subject of today's biopic, brilliantly inhabited by Rosamund Pike, and she was a war reporter so committed to her mission that she died in Syria just a few years ago, probably the target of an intentional hit by the Syrian government because she was exposing the atrocities they were inflicting on their people. Marie Colvin makes a fascinating focus for a character study. She was a hard-drinking, eye-patch-wearing badass who refused to play by anyone's rules and bravely went right into the teeth of some of the most terrifying conflicts of the last several decades. On the one hand, she's convinced that she can inspire empathy and understanding in her readers if she tells the stories of the people affected by the war. On the other hand, she is cynical and haunted as she attempts to set her own trauma to the side to continue her dogged pursuit of the story. We visit four wars in this film, probably a friendly fire record. We travel with Marie Colvin from Sri Lanka to Iraq too, Libya during the Arab Spring, and the Syrian Civil War, which as of this recording is ongoing. Colvin is occasionally holed up in a fancy hotel, but more often is zagging between Jersey barriers as she efforts her way closer and closer to the hottest parts of the action. She witnesses the horrors firsthand and reports them out, wins rewards for her reporting, rinse, repeat. The central question is whether it's working or not. She's reporting sometimes via Skype connection to Anderson Cooper's evening news show and desperately trying to get us like here and now us, but also seven years ago us, to notice the bad things happening in our world. She wants us to empathize with the victims of those conflicts, see them as human, put ourselves in their shoes. The film definitely believes that this effort is worthwhile. It's not a film about a lost cause, but it's also hard to avoid feeling a sense of tragedy with how much harder it was for Colvin to get our attention relative to those Vietnam reporters. The words on everybody's lips are, why have we been abandoned? Today on Friendly Fire, a private war. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that sees it so you don't have to. But, you know, maybe sometimes you should. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick. This movie did not do well at the box office. Not many people saw this. I mean, what is a moviegoer's appetite for this kind of reel? 
It's got a strong female lead, so strong that she's wearing an eye patch. It kind of feels like an Oscar Beatty type of film. It is, and I feel like the Oscar Beatty-ness of a couple of the performances in a couple of scenes. There, There's a lot of great acting in this, but there are a couple yeah. of sort of Oscar Beatty scenes that that jar you, or at least jarred me out of the moment and felt like acting. Hmm. <laughs> it was the part of uh, Wayne's World where they put Oscar clip <laughs> at the bottom of the screen. Am I supposed to be a man? I mean, it's a heavy movie, and it, and and it, and I think it's largely well done. You guys are being incredibly cynical about a biopic that's well acted and constructed. Uh, maybe we could interrogate a little bit uh, why you feel such a performance. Why are you lumping me with in with something John said? I, yeah. I felt like you guys were in agreement. Are you Why not? are you lumping me in with you two ding-dongs? <laughs> uh, I've, I do not feel the uh, the cynicism for this film that, that you're coming right out of the gates with. Where, where are you getting this? I mean, people have described Rosamund Pike's performance as like being true to true to Marie Colvin's like nature. Like she nailed it. What about that as Oscar bait? Well, I mean, Oscar bait in the sense that there are strategic considerations when a film is greenlit and and released about like what what its position in the marketplace is. And it was a early November release, and definitely, I think, had aspirations for nominations. She got nominated for a Golden Globe, but not an Oscar. And I think that it is not to diminish the quality of the film at all to say that it's Oscar bait. I am capable of of sniffing Oscar bait as a thing. I'm not I'm not saying that that this isn't a thing that some films have or are capable of. For instance, uh, the Winston Churchill films that we saw felt that way. But I think there's a proximity to the real events here that is such that I don't detect it at all. Like there's a recency here that makes it feel. Uh, more important than would be Beatty instead. Well, the film opens with a voiceover. I think fear comes later when, you, when it's all over. And it's a voiceover of um, what we assume, I think, is Rosamund Pike reply, uh, answering questions in, the, in an interview about how she'd like to be remembered after she's gone. And her... In those replies, and we don't see her face, we see scenes of um, of the devastation in Syria as we listen to her kind of describe how she'd like to be remembered. And there was a there was a tone to that voiceover that made me wince a little bit right at the top of the film. It's revealed at the very end of the film that that is not Rosamund Pike. That's an actual clip of Marie Colvin being interviewed. And the tone of the voice that causes me to wince of the kind of theatricality, intrinsic theatricality of a war correspondent, that, that is, I think, the central plot of this movie, a war correspondent that is, that in order to do that work, they have to be self-aggrandizing. They have to think that what they're doing is important when there's, a, there's an argument that it's just voyeuristic. The character of Colvin at one point. I mean, she's interrogating this throughout 
throughout the film in herself and everybody that knows her is. She's seen more war than most soldiers, but she also consistently puts herself in harm's way and often it feels a little bit, well, it feels totally unnecessary sometimes. I felt a lot of comparisons to Hurt Locker in this movie. Yeah. Treating war, war as, a, as an addictive substance. And also Salvador, um, I saw a lot of comparisons there. And, and I think my reaction has to do with the fact that I imagined at one point in my life that I might be a war correspondent. Like this is the kind of job that appealed to me when I was young. It triggers something in me. By all accounts, she was a difficult person to know and like. And these scenes were true to her nature, if not true biographically. It may just be that you don't like Marie Colvin. No, I think I, I think <laughs> I do like and admire Marie Colvin. But I mean, if you really want to get down to it, this isn't a straight biopic. It's very much like the Hurt Locker. It's stylistic. There's a lot of timeline jumping around. There's this whole countdown to Syria uh, conceit that we see at the start of the film. I mean, there's a lot of style in it. And so I'm, I am not against this movie and I'm not against her and I'm not against the portrayal. I'm just, I started off with this, uh, with a little bit of tone about it. And I think it's, it's maybe a trend these days that you can't do a straight biopic, even about somebody that's super interesting. You have to have an Annie Lennox song. You have to have, you know, you have to have all this style. I was consistently kind of being not not jolted out of the movie, but just reminded that I was that I was watching like a rendition. That's interesting because the director of this film has a pretty heavy and awarded history of documentary film. Like he is like that's how he cut his teeth. And I felt the, yeah, this is his first narrative feature. Huh. Yeah, and so what what you uh, what you consumed as style, I consumed as technique grafted over from documentary as a way to to tell this story. I think his most his best known documentary is uh, is Cartel Land, which was you know is famously shot like kind of it is somewhat like. Uh, war, war videography because he's like on the, you know, on the border of the U.S. and Mexico, like following, you know, drug trade stuff and vigilantes, and uh, he got like in the thick of it. Like his uh, his Wikipedia photo is of him in a in a bulletproof vest with a handheld camera, like. I don't think anything close to the kind of war correspondent that Marie Colvin was, but not a neophyte to that as like a milieu. Like he, he actually kind of knows what he's talking about. Well, and I think that that suggests a question, which is uh, why wouldn't why wouldn't he make a documentary about Marie Colvin? Right? There's plenty of footage about her. There's plenty of footage about all of these conflicts that that I mean, and I'm not saying. That, that making a narrative feature was a bad choice. But you he also could have made a really powerful documentary about her, I'm, I'm assuming. If we're going to take your idea of like there being a, a certain conceit in being a war correspondent and, and follow it to its conclusion, like maybe he is trying to 
justify that kind of conceit in a in a certain way. Yeah, I think so. How many episodes of Friendly Fire have we done? Eighty. To only now like begin to develop an idea of of a co-host taste in war films specifically. While initially I was surprised at your initial reaction to this film, John, like when I think about your feelings about a film like Sicario, like it totally makes sense. Like there's a there's a threshold in style that I feel like generally you are someone that dislikes. There's a limitation to the amount of style or a, the hand of a director in play that that you immediately detect in a way that uh, that I am not as attuned to. And it's really interesting to like to argue that point. I am super zoomed in on the job of a war correspondent. We're now living in a world where newspapers like the New York Times, the London Times, the Washington Post, they're cutting budgets, they're closing foreign offices. We no longer they're no longer paying for reporters like this. And there's this sort of sense in this world of malleable truth that a reporter like Colvin who is sending these these dispatches from Syria she gets put up on the news and then there then it it switches over to somebody with a deep fake video of UFOs and it's all given this like well <laughs> uh you know there are opinions on both sides back to you Anderson like it feels like something has died and this movie is maybe a eulogy for it hmm, hmm. yeah she was the last of a of a kind that scene toward the end when she's skyping into anderson cooper i, I remember the the number twenty eight thousand civilians like that was a big topic in the news and i remember at the time being very frustrated that the obama administration didn't seem to be able to muster any will to do anything about what assad was doing in syria and like that that moment in that scene when it kind of cuts around to everybody all over the world watching her final report on CNN, like almost knowing that it's her, her final report. Like it sort of implies that that made a huge difference in something. But instead, like what happened was we were all aware that Syria was doing a huge atrocity in plain view of the world and nothing, nothing happened, you know, like we didn't even as a country, make a big effort to accommodate refugees. I feel like this film is more about Marie Colvin than it is about the missed opportunities in conflicts around the world. And that I that is a shock to me because we are embedded with her in several of them. And yet, like, the main takeaway I get from the film is about how tragic it is that she died the way that she did instead of, like, the additional tragedy of the senselessness of the conflict she was embedded in to begin with. Like there's, there's upriver conflict from the one that's being presented in the film and it is right there to consume and understand. But personally it was all about her and not about the conflict. Were you seeing it in the same way? So Colvin died in February of 2012 and it was August of 2012, 
that Obama gave his red line speech where he, you know, he said, if Assad uses chemical weapons past this point, um, the, you know, the U.S. will will not stand idly by. That speech is remembered as a foreign policy failure because, of course, the U.S. did not know exactly what to do. Having made that speech and, the, and watching Assad cross that red line and sort of doing nothing. Was it an appetite for war issue at that point? Was that the pushback? It's a consistent problem in American foreign policy since yeah. uh, the 80s, which is we're expected to be the world's police. We're expected to intervene in every humanitarian crisis. We expect ourselves to. It's a standard we hold ourselves to. This is the Rwanda problem. This is the Black Hawk Down scenario where we intervene and I think often just expect that if we hold our saber up high enough that all these sort of brutal, petty dictators will run and hide and they increasingly defy us. I mean, the U.S. cannot... There's a, there's a thousand things people think we should have done in the case of Syria and Assad. But what do you do when, when the leader of a country decides he, in order to accomplish his, the goal of staying in power, he's going to murder 500,000 of his own people? One of the fucked parts about it is that a citizen can't look at this conflict and go and answer the question, why here but not there? Like, America goes into other countries and saves them. In I'm paraphrasing saves. your argument here. Yeah, saves. In um, like in quotes, yeah. in, in like triple quotes. <laughs> like why why Iraq and not Syria is a simplistic question to ask in a case like this. Well, yeah, I mean, what we did in Iraq is was illegal, and and the cynic, the cynic, and you don't even have to be that cynical to see that it that oil was the motivator. Yeah. Um, but you know the Monroe Doctrine prohibits us from assassinating leaders of other countries. And that's why we go through all these tortured justifications. You could have just, we could have dropped a bomb on Saddam Hussein. Uh, we could have dropped a bomb on Assad, but... We tried with Gaddafi. <laughs> well, but you know, like, try... I mean, you've got to have the, you've got to have some plausible deniability. I mean, that's actually like a one of the things that Marie Colvin brought to light was that the U.S. attempted attempted to take Gaddafi out by bombing his palace, and he like very narrowly escaped. It's a strange trick. And what is the threshold of genocide? I mean, that's being argued constantly. I mean, this is a question that I had in this film, because once you're able to make that transition, is this not a problem? Fifty cruise missiles can't solve. The thing about genocide is that I think the premise is that you're trying to eliminate a people. And Assad wasn't and, trying and to... And civilians is not a qualification not for a, that? It's not a people, right? Yeah. I mean, he's not trying to eliminate the Syrians. He's just trying to eliminate the Syrians that don't get in line. Yeah. Um, if it was a... Tr if he were trying to... If all of the dissenters were Kurds and all of the dead were Kurds... I think we would call it a genocide. I think occasionally, at least in my mind, a quantity is attached to that word instead of a, a representation, uh, probably and definitely incorrectly. But, but that's like, I couldn't help but think about all of these 
non-combatants just hold up, you know, in the fetal position, just waiting. Wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, nowhere to go. And it felt genocidal to me in that way, like the, the imagery of it. Maybe the final piece of this false construction I'm making around genocide is that the buttons are being pushed by a single leader, like like the Assad figure as being its locus. Like this seems to be also in keeping with genocides of the past. Like they are, they come from one specific person, these orders do. And that's what made it feel familiar to me, all of those things together. Yeah, I, I, I guess Assad is trying to cling to power as opposed to, I don't know, that's the, the, there's the, there's a xenophobia in a, in a genocide. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think was here. This was much more, this was, a, this was happening during a time when through across the Arab world, there were uprisings. It was, you know, kind of sparked by this, um, sort of somewhat peaceful revolution in Tunisia and it, and it caught fire and all across the Arab world, there were street protests and there was a, a sudden sense that this thing that the West had dreamed about for decades, that democracy was going to sweep across Arabia or, you know, the whole Arab sphere and all these autocrats were going to tumble down. And you know, this was the, this was Brenner's whole vision for Iraq. We were going to come in and take out Saddam and they were going to build a Massachusetts there. <laughs> and you know and very, different arab countries responded different ways assad decided we're gonna prosecute saddam <laughs> in a fucking suffolk county courthouse <laughs> Allahu Akbar. <laughs> but back to colvin right i mean the, her story ends in syria but it certainly wasn't confined to it i was thinking that this movie like dramatically brings up the number of wars we've seen depicted in this podcast because I don't think we'd spent any time in Sri Lanka. I guess we have been to Sri Lanka. We've we've seen things set on that island, but not wars set on that island. I can't think of a lot of films that spend any time on it, and it, it caused me to consider that like that and East Timor are things that we should have represented on our list, and I'm not sure if we have a way to have them on our list or not. If those films have been made. Right. Yeah. I guess that is the point of telling the story of Colvin because she was out there making that somewhat insistent point on the front page of the Sunday London Times. Right. Over and over and over again. Look, I'm out here. Hey, you need to pay attention to this. That's right. How can how can the world sleep while while children are being murdered and and her her frustration at at watching the world sleep. I mean, we see a lot of scenes where her editors are, or at least a handful of scenes where her editors have this hot story and they're kind of arguing about whether or not it's too much of a bummer to put on the Sunday uh, front page of the Sunday times and whether they should go with a safer story. And they usually make the decision just kind of gleefully because of the circulation you know, the, this is going to be a big hit for the paper that that isn't played as cynically as I'm making it sound within the film, but it's it's consistently there that she's sending in. You know, we see her covered with blood and mud. 
she sends in her report and then there are these fleet street suits kind of like right what, what do you think is this good enough for the front page there's like a if it bleeds it leads sensibility to it but there to me there felt like a greater cynicism which was coming from the foreign editor at her paper which is like can marie take it can is she well enough to send back out in the field right which edged so close into manipulation and exploitation then, yeah. yeah and I mean, Marie, as depicted in this film, is a flawed person, a broken person even, someone who doesn't feel manipulated into her circumstances. She's someone who wants to go to these places, but is also maybe not someone that should be trusted to to advocate for her well-being at any point. It is such an interesting conflict between her and her workplace in that way, because they both sort of want the same thing, except only one of those two parties can say it. Only Marie can say it, because that uh, that slimy Sean Ryan guy... We're on to a bloody winner. ...is, like, just sort of incidentally there. Like, he, he presents himself as someone who cares, like in those scenes where she's in a hospital... He can't ask directly if she's well enough to work. He always kisses her at every, when she shows up to receive her awards, he's always there on the dais. Right. You balance that against like the super heroism of the Marie Colvin character, which is like, and this is on the nose superhero movie. She sees a story on a television behind the person she's talking to. And then in the next scene, she's just like pulling at her tie to yeah, she, change into the super. She has costume. gone into the phone booth and then she's <laughs> on the back of the truck in that war zone. I just went on a long motorcycle trip. And then almost immediately afterwards, a very famous motorcyclist, Carlin Dunn, who was on his way to he was like he was like within sight of the finish line of setting a new record in the Pike Pikes Peak hill climb died on the race course and everybody you know eulogized him he was a great racer and this was a tragedy and it really made me reflect on where in our culture we reward like risk taking we reward edge case behavior um, and we do it and war movies are, are, are a great place to examine it because we see over and over again the heroes of these films are putting themselves consistently in harm's way and, and oftentimes they die and we eulogize them. There are just as many instances in our culture where people that are 24 years old put themselves in harm's way and die and we criticize them or critique them. I mean, we spend so much time, for instance, and this is this is maybe a an edge example, but we there is an awful lot of suicide prevention effort in the world to keep twenty four year olds who are who have a death wish alive. But if that twenty four year old decides that they're going to be a, a free climber, or if you die from an overdose, uh, it's pathetic. But if you if you try to surmount El Capitan and fall to your death, it's heroic. And the, and in Colvin's case, she really is a she is a junkie, not just for adrenaline, but for, I mean, she's situating herself as central in these conflicts. Like she is making herself a character in them, and we we laud her for it. Feels suicidal. Is it suicidal or just self destructive? Or is there, or do you not draw a distinction? Well, no, I guess you're right, and that, and and so I, so I do make the distinction between someone standing on 
the edge of a bridge, which we see her do in this film also, um, or someone who is shooting up dope as part of being a rock musician. It triggers me because of something I recognize, which is sitting in a, a hotel lobby, typing away on the computer while the plaster falls down and everyone in the place is wearing flak jackets and we're all chain smoking and and writing like dateline fallujah the people of the city are being you know like that is that's so dramatic personally it's a it's a dramatic scene it's like watching amy winehouse self-destruct we love what we're getting we love the music we all know she's doomed and somehow we're consuming her destruction with you know with this kind of voracious appetite and when she dies we we mourn or we we take a moment to reflect but it's a it's a consumption of a of a person at where the person is where the person is destroying themselves as a as a form of well as a form of art there's a a perverse kind of optimism in the ethos that Marie Colvin talks about in this movie. The idea that like people will connect with people. And if you just tell these stories and talk about like the human cost of, of going to war, it'll make people care. Like she seems to truly believe that if she can get just outside of the, the sphere of destruction, like she can, she can tell a story that will change people's minds about what to do about this. That that poignancy was maybe the most tragic part of the film for me was like how incorrect her idealism was, really. Because we're in a time where you can't agree on what what a person's facts are, even if a person is there reporting from a war zone. There are some people who will never get that news coverage because that isn't the channel they watch or even if they did get it it wouldn't align with their worldview in such a way that it wouldn't move their needle to begin with like it's great and brave and idealistic to believe what she believed but it is tragic to believe that also because it's just it's not true journalists like colvin there's an um i think a pretty convincing read of history that they ended the Vietnam War by doing precisely this kind of reporting. But by the time she was doing her work, there was, as you say, Adam, this sort of splintering of what of what the truth was, but also what our capacity for um, we just have outrage fatigue. Uh, and this was this was absolutely true during the Bosnian War. A lot of those uh, those early stories about the Bosnian War had those really complicated maps where where yeah. the whole idea of the Balkans needed to be explained to people and it still didn't make any sense when you're like, well, these are the Bosnian Serbs, those are the Bosnian Croats. And after a time, the American people, and I think the what we call the West, right? The, this is true in the UK too. There's just information overload. But right now, if she was reporting from Syria with this stuff, there are people that would that would dismiss her reporting. There were people that wouldn't see it. There are people on, that would say uh, everything the United States does is bad. 
there, I mean, there are so many hot takes. There are so many people that are like, why do we care what's going on in Syria when our own police are, are committing murder in the streets? That question of capacity is so confounding because like the only way to get around the limits of a person's capacity for stuff like this is for there to be a protracted amount of peacetime so as to make the spike so pronounced and shocking that that you would get someone's attention with it. And because global war has been sustained for so long, like, how do you possibly solve for this? How do you actually make it affect people? It's a question I'm going to be thinking about for a long time after this movie. This happened a number of years ago, and like, there is still no solution to these problems. There is still a lack of capacity for their consumption. Another Marie is going to pop up and go to these places, and what are we going to do? Or maybe not. Maybe newspapers won't fund this kind of reporting anymore. Yeah. I mean, the nations of Europe responded to this by taking in tens of thousands of Syrian refugees. See you at the Hummer, Norm. Save me a seat at the bar. You bet. There's just a whiff of a professional rivalry between Marie and Kate, and mostly it is due to the idea of her editor finding Kate a more reliable reporter out in the field because of Marie's many personal failings. Kate isn't pounding a quart of vodka before she (laughs) heads out to the front line. Marie's in Sean Ryan's uh, office for that lunchtime visit, and she sees that, that Kate's trophies are in front of Marie's. And that is maybe the only part in the movie where I got the sense that that her motivations were ambitious in any way. Like, this film doesn't make a super strong case that she is someone who is going for the trophies that she's receiving. But she's a rock star, and she's very conscious of being a rock star. I mean, we see a lot of award ceremonies in this film where she, you know, kind of swoops in. But there's never that point. Like, there are war films where we see the war photographer snapping pictures, and then the photographer's like, there's my Pulitzer. (laughs) This film never gets even close to that being a reason for her being in these places, I don't feel. Right. Right. The the award ceremonies are are there to seem incongruous to what her natural environment is. And they're is, not, not comfortable to, for her, I don't think, either. Yeah. I, yeah, like the only place she seems to truly be comfortable is in the most uncomfortable places, like the collapsing building with the with the rocks coming down from the ceiling because they're being shelled. But at the end of the movie we see as the credits roll a montage of the actual her actual columns with her byline her quote you know her pull quote at the at the as the headline and her extremely cool looking like reporter photograph of her with her eye patch her extremely rakish eye patch there's an amazing photo of her in the uh, in the Vanity Fair article that this film is based on. The the woman that wrote that article, she deserves a biopic about herself. She's written some incredible profiles over the years. She was, and they made the movie The Insider about her um, about her piece. That's Marie Brenner's fault. That's great. Yeah. Wow. Bre- Marie Brenner. There, there's a there's an incredible. Uh, a story about how Donald Trump walked up 
to Marie Brenner when she was sitting at Tavern on the Green or something and poured a glass of wine down the front of her shirt because she'd written some shitty thing about him. I mean, she's she's her own God, ju- what a, hero what a badge journalist. Of honor. Yeah, That's great. I, I, th- I thought he was a teetotaler, though. He picked up a glass of wine off of somebody else's. But he, he threw a Big Mac down the front of her shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're famous, they'll let you do it. Yeah. He pulled it out of the inside of inside pocket of one of those blousy jackets. I watched this film identifying with her so much and I and I feel like identifying with her from a place inside myself that I kind of despise because I can't help but feel that I am motivated by conflicting desires and conflicting ambitions in putting myself in harm's way in a similar fashion. And I see it in her. I see, I see it in her even through a portrayal of her. And so it was, it was a, it was a tough watch for me because yeah, I remember all these conflicts. I remember all this reporting and I envied it a little. I envied her, her self-destruction in front of us all. And that, and that envy in me is, is something about myself. I despise. I don't think I have the wrong take on her because I because I feel it so acutely. I've heard you talk on one of your other shows, John, about the many days you wake up not really knowing what you're going to do that day and that, you know, like a lot of that would drive a lot of people crazy, but you have kind of an optimism about your ability to, you know, take the take the slings and arrows that a day throws at you and and turn it into something and uh, having known you for several years now and watched watched you live your life, I and and I, I wonder if that is an optimism you compare to the thing we were talking about with Marie Colvin believing that what she is doing can make a difference. If I had a job where I was at a cocktail party and I looked over someone's shoulder and there was a news report on, and the next day I was there, like that's really how. I feel almost feel like I was meant to live and I and I did live that way but but in a but in a muted in a muted way for many years walk out the door and and follow the follow the smoke or follow the helicopters follow the wafting cheese smell (laughs) (laughs) you guys are just talking about Pepe Le Pew right (laughs) he's extremely problematic Uh, yeah Pepe is canceled uh, and so, and that's the that's somewhat of the envy I feel because she gave herself a sense of purpose. But you know, I feel like if that sense of purpose was, if what she was doing and what war correspondents are doing, um, if it is self justifying, if they are bringing it, if they are bringing that story to the world and putting it in front of our faces, and that is an an unalloyed good they wouldn't need to justify it all the time. You know, there's so much justification of it in this movie. And I think it's, and I think it's an uh, accurate to the, to the class or to the cult because I don't think it is clear. I think they do sit around in, in hotels in Fallujah and convince one another that what they're doing is shining a light. And then they have to get up the next day and, and make that, make that case again because the because the world doesn't maybe support that thesis they're shining a light and we go oh uh-huh uh-huh and, and then the we world go world requires a repetition of it 
then you turn the page and you do the Sudoku. All you have is oil. Al-Qaeda, so, Al-Qaeda not my people. So you finance bloodshed. The scene where she sits down with Gaddafi really struck me because she does not have any fear about calling him on the more brutal things he's doing. I feel like I've been a couple of times in a room with a politician or somebody with some power that did something that I disagree with that, but like, you know, like politicians have like a ton of magnetism and, you know, I'm also not a journalist. So it's like, who who gives a shit what I say to them or, or don't, but like, she's, you know, in a room with a man who's in a position to disappear her and not really pulling any punches. And this is like after like other journalists were killed. Does her fame not give her an invincibility? Yeah, in she's, those pr- she's protected by her notoriety by her. And it's got to be such a breath of fresh air for, for Gaddafi to, to not have a yes man. You live a life surrounded by sycophants and all of a sudden you've got another famous one and then two, a famous who is giving you your shit right back at you. And But but I think crucially, he completely blows her off. And yes. then she's yeah. just sitting there like, oh, all right. I mean, we see this on the internet a lot where someone stands up at a public meeting and shouts, j'accuse, at a politician. <laughs> and, uh, and then the clip goes viral and we all feel a certain yeah. schadenfreude. But- Dad shreds. <laughs> representative or whatever yeah right i mean somebody has to get hauled out of a public meeting because they're talking about um and it depends you know whether half is that of, like a creed shreds <laughs> <Is it like, laughs> i mean half of those people are just shouting that uh that jet fuel can't melt steel beams but the other half are are doing what she did and saying you know murderer um but they get hauled out and and the clip did what exactly you know, I mean, we we are living in a time when our president has been denounced and demonstrated to be a villain over and over and over. And he does what Gaddafi did in this movie, which is like, I love talking to you. Yeah. You're so pretty. I'm just looking forward to corpse selfie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't help. I couldn't help in that moment, but think like. Dude, corpse selfie with Gaddafi. Like, who did you have to be to be in that yeah. room? A lot of likes on the gram. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like the like that moment, kind of maybe more than any other, typifies the the shift in the way we consume these things, yeah. right? Right, because her her professional photographer, they're standing there in the room. People are taking selfies with the body, and she obviously can't take a selfie, right? But she but she kind of stage directs her photographer kicks actually pushes Gaddafi's face over with her shoe. And he takes, (laughs) he takes a couple of like good photographs of it. And then they walk out as people are just laying down next to him. Like, check me out. They've got the Snapchat filter with the face swap (laughs) room full of Lindy England's. (laughs) But you're right. I mean, that was, that was chilling, a chilling moment. Don't stand there. I can't see you. I know we, we take great pains in not comparing films to other films in this project. One of us does. I know I do. But I'm going to steer the conversation into that idea uh, quickly because this film actually makes email stressful in a way that a film like The Green Zone does not. Like, I really felt things when I watched Marie Colvin 
write to her boyfriend, for example, from the war zone. And you could argue that, I mean, that was one of the last images of her was sending that message away before she flees the the building. Why was that effective in a film like this and not effective in a film like The Green Zone? Is it because Marie Colvin is just a more interesting character? This film really fleshes her out. Yeah. We're not left wondering what she's motivated by. We're not left wondering where she came from or who she is. I really felt like we knew her pretty well and we're suffering along with her. And the green zone just felt a lot more that we were given, being given a sketch. How much danger can you possibly be in if you are in a hangar with a safe full of cash? You're going to be fine. <laughs> Mr. Rogers always said, when there's a dangerous situation, look for the safe full of cash. That's the safest place to be. And then uh, what did you think of its bookend construction in terms of opening on the shot that it finishes with and opening on the voiceover and then finishing with voiceover? Occasionally we'll watch a film where that is varying degrees of effective. I mean, we're counting down to her death from the beginning of the movie. Is that what you wanted? I didn't realize we were seeing their bodies in the beginning. Were we supposed to know that? No, that was supposed to rock our world at yeah. the end. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, from the way you described it, John, that the, your experience was that the voiceover, it was a reveal that that was the real Murray Colvin's voice right? at the end. And... I think I assumed when I f first started watching it that I was hearing the real Murray Colvin's voice. I don't know why I, that was the assumption I leapt to. To me, what it did was I, I heard it, that as the real Murray Colvin's voice, immediately forgot it, but then like in spending time with Rosamund Pike's portrayal was really blown away when we got that last bit of the clip at the end at how much she nailed this like incredibly unique pattern of speech that the real... Marie Colvin had. I had that same feeling. And, and honestly, like in hearing that little snippet of her voice at the end, <clears throat> I was no longer annoyed by it. It no longer triggered me because, um, Rosamund Pike had done such an effective job of letting me get to know this person. So I could hear her actual responses and I felt like I understood who it, I didn't have that feeling of like, Hah! I was much more, I was just engaged. I was stunned. I was actually stunned when it was revealed that it was her. And I thought that was extremely effective. But the countdown to her death as a conceit, as a, as a framing device. Yeah, you don't need to artificially juice that, do you? I don't think, I mean, if this movie had just started when she started uh, as, as a war correspondent and had walked us all the way through and she'd been pulled from, her fat had been pulled from the fire over and over and over again. When she finally died, I think it would have been more effective if we hadn't spent the whole film waiting for it. I wonder to what degree that is a documentarian's impulse specifically, because so often in like the constraints of a doc, you're telling a story in, in a linear fashion and you're doing anything you can to make that interesting. You're talking heads and your B-roll, like how can I possibly hold someone's attention? And like these constructions are a way to do that this this pattern of storytelling this book ending of things are are techniques huh. that that are in a documentarian's 
portfolio. And I just wonder if that was like a natural inclination for someone of, uh, of Matthew Heinemann's pedigree. Like, I wonder if there was any, ever any thought of him not doing it like that. Right. And that, that feels, I don't know that, uh, like you were saying, I guess that's the kind of style that, that jumps out to me as a, as a, as a thing I, I rankle at. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, he didn't like slow pan across any sepia-toned photographs while people read letters home in Virginia accents. Right. (laughs) My darling Clementine, I'm here in Syria thinking of your love, thinking of your heathen bosom. (laughs) All of the Clementine scenes were cut out of this film, unfortunately. Uh, before we review, is there are there any pedantic moments, Ben? The only one of any interest at all on IMDb is that there were teleprompters visible in the hospital scene, reflected in somebody's eyeglasses. Oh. And I wondered if that was because like the performers weren't off book or what. But not in a newsroom scene in a in, in right. the middle of a battle. Teleprompters. Yeah. It was a very like short little. Uh, entry on the uh, on the goof section so I don't know if that was the hospital in Ceylon or the hospital in Homs which thing it's referring to but I thought that that was an, an interesting note on technique I listened to a little radio piece uh, about this film where they interviewed an NPR war correspondent who had a personal relationship with Marie Colvin who spoke uh, very highly of Rosamund Pike's portrayal and also they talked to the director of the film and uh, one thing he said uh, that I thought was very interesting was they filmed all of the war scenes in I think Lebanon he said but they brought in extras who were refugees from all of the real conflicts that were depicted so people who actually had kind of experienced some of what was what was being shown and it was important to him to to actually like work with people that had on the ground real expertise and what and and the kind of people that they were portraying, which I thought was a pretty, you know, for the for this being his first feature, a, a more complicated thing to ask for than most directors I think would. Right, because could you imagine you're you're on set and you're directing both background, primary and primary actors, you're trying to conjure a feeling and a reality like what do you possibly tell a person who's been there in order to evoke that feeling and to make a scene work like that can seems you, can, can you do what you did when your own family was discovered uh, buried in the desert just Isn't like that all you can say like, late in that you way never direct them in any other way i sort of feel like that like i, I thought that that was that was evident and, and extremely effective yeah. in this movie because we're looking at iraqis libyans Syrians and Hollywood's normal uh, way of dealing with this would be to just cast out of a out of a extra pool of Arab looking people and we've seen this a lot in films where you know the lead Iraqi is played by somebody from South America who just sort of looks Arab um, close enough for for our kind of untrained eye. But you really do get a sense of Iraqis, Syrians, and Libyans being, although all Arab Muslims, being different people. 
you feel it when we switch to another location you feel that location in the in just the carriage of the people and their and their appearance it's really yeah. well done there's no vowel verification no. happening in the film he's an interesting filmmaker and just kind of at the beginning of his career and i'll i'll be uh i think i will be eager to see the next thing he he does well the next thing we do is review the film for each film we discuss, a custom rating system is made, and I'm the maker of that system. It's a scale of one to five things. The thing is the thing that catches my eye in the film of, of a particular nature. And in A Private War, there is a moment fairly early on where Marie Colvin and her photographer are being driven to a war zone. I think it's in Iraq. Correct me if I'm wrong. But they come up to a checkpoint, and they're stopped. There is a tension about this checkpoint that is not different from other depictions of checkpoints in war zones. This doesn't feel lethal at this moment, because there is a capacity for conversation. There's a translator. They're understanding each other. They are not at the end of someone's gun at this point. And one of the technologies that Marie Colvin uses to get past circumstances like these is um, she uses the ignorance of the person she's interacting with in order to gain access. Uh, The instrument she uses in this scene is a gym membership card that she uses to prove that she is an aid worker who works for the British Health Health Department because the card says British Health on it, but it is a gym membership card. And this is the card that grants her access to a country and an area that she wouldn't ordinarily be allowed in. And that is who Marie Colvin is. That's who she is to us. Like she gets us access to these areas that we would ordinarily not be allowed in. And it is her creative thinking that makes that happen. It is her creativity and storytelling that paints these vivid pictures of her experiences in these places. And as I was watching this movie, I really feel like of the of the 80 films that we've seen for Friendly Fire, she is near the top in terms of heroism. Like we can we can adjudicate to what degree she's got a death wish. I don't see her as someone to feel sorry for. And maybe I should. I see her as a hero in a way that belongs in like the pantheon of war film heroes that we've experienced on Friendly Fire. I think a lot of war films we watch are incredibly sad. And maybe the saddest part of this film is just thinking about her faith in humanity and the amount of effort she puts towards sharing the truth of her circumstances with people who maybe are undeserving. And like, I felt sometimes watching this film that I was undeserving of her effort. It made me deeply uncomfortable to to realize that. Like, I'm not doing anything because of her reporting. She's out there in order to encourage that. And I still do nothing. Like, what is it going to take? That made me really sad. And it made me really admire her her strength and her bravery. So... The film itself has some flaws. It is stylized in a way that might not uh, work for some viewers, but 
I thought her character was the thing that stood out most to me, and her character was was such a bright light that it really like overshadowed every other thing about the film. And I'm really glad that I got to know her through the film. And uh, for that reason, I'm gonna I'm gonna go four and a half gym membership cards. Uh, I think this is a film that should be seen. I hope a lot of people do. I hope this inspires people to become reporters, if not field reporters, for conflicts like these. I think this is important work and great work. I agree. I was surprised that this movie was as good as it was because this was like on a on a bus bench across the street from my house. This was like the the movie being advertised in my neighborhood for a little while. And I remember, I think the last movie I'd seen with Rosamund Pike and it was Seven Days in Entebbe. Right. Which uh, I, I feel like has kind of stuck with all three of us, despite none of us uh, at the time thinking it was like a particularly great film. I feel like we kind of like bring it up uh, <laughs> as often as some of the great movies that we've seen. It sure indicated a willingness on Rosamund Pike's part to like get into it. Yeah. She's a brave actor. I agree. And I I, I think I saw the ads and I didn't, nothing about the poster made me feel like I knew what the movie was and I didn't ever see a trailer for it and I just never felt motivated to go see the movie. And I feel bad about that. I feel like this is a movie that probably would have been even more impactful on the big screen. It's a story that I hope more people hear about. I mean, the war correspondence do is important and I I agree with what John said that like it it seems to its impact seems to have diffused somewhat in the kind of outrage fatigue that we all feel in in the like social media era. But l- like knowing about what's going on is better than not knowing about what's going on and I uh, I hope we as a society can find a way to like continue to uh to support this kind of work and maybe also support it in like ways uh, aside from monetary like support it in the ways of like helping helping people that do this kind of work uh with the mental fallout of witnessing what they uh, have signed up to witness so uh I, I think it's a very good but imperfect movie and I, i'll give it uh, four gym memberships i we started off right out of the gate talking about the oscar baitness of it it set an initial tone of criticism well because adam got really mad at, at me for saying that yeah adam adam got mad but that set a tone uh where it uh it's it sounded like you and I didn't like it, Ben. And I think this is sometimes confusing to friendly fire listeners that we will criticize a movie pretty in pretty strong terms throughout the film and then give it strong ratings uh, because I think that's just our instinct to do. I really liked this movie. I thought Rosamund Pike did a, a tremendous performance. It obviously triggered me a lot of different ways. Um, I remember seeing the poster for this or the, the, this film was on airplanes a lot this spring. I saw it over and over as a, I I mean, I saw the, the opportunity to watch it over and over and I didn't because I figured we would see it within the show. There's definitely like, I, I definitely have a hesitancy to put on a 
put on a movie or go out to a movie about war since we started this podcast just because i'm like Ugh, i see enough as it is yeah right well and also i don't need to like do it in my free time also <laughs> I feel like you gotta save it but watching uh looking at the poster of her with the eye patch on kind of obviously sitting in the back of a pickup truck or something i knew exactly what this movie was and i and i and i figured it was oscar bait i mean i figured it was a film that was not going to be fun to watch uh and you weren't meant to enjoy it you were meant to be punished by it and i think it succeeded the whole notion of a foreign correspondent the whole idea that news is something that is good for us virtuous to consume um is something that that uh i grew up with it almost feels anachronistic now uh, there was a time when an informed person read the newspaper all the way through and it was a thick newspaper and they watched the evening news and they watched the shows after the evening news that dissected the news of the day. And it was a time that, and, and we critique that time now because what that was, was a, a time of monolithic culture. It was a time when there were only three television stations. It was a time when we agreed what the news was and we agreed on the idea of journalistic um, integrity, but also the idea that a journalist could be neutral and not have a viewpoint. And we have spent the last 20 years or more, the last 50 years, looking at that idea of, of a monolithic culture and making uh, in a lot of ways, very apt critiques of it because it is not an inclusive way of presenting the truth. What we, by definition, lost was the sense that you would sit down at the end of the day and consume the the work of someone like this and share that, share a common understanding with other people that consumed it so that the, that the next day you would talk around the water cooler about the war in Syria. We don't have that anymore. And I don't think we will regain it anytime soon because it requires that everybody consume the same news. Um, we see her also bridge this time because she says many times, like I'm not interested in what kind of airplane dropped the bomb. I'm interested in the human story but she gets herself in the narrative and she is not an, uh, just, just an outside observer. She's a, she has a take, a moral take on what's happening. Um, she's an editorialist as much as she is a journalist. I thought it was so interesting in that CNN interview when she uses the word lie and like Anderson Cooper can't help but like talk about how unusual it is to hear that word. Right. And that was then that was 2012 that, it, you know, so much has changed in the last seven years. But yeah. not that, not the reluctance to use that word. I mean, in the mainstream media, you're absolutely right. But there's so much other media now. Yeah. The mainstream media is is um, I guess it's still catering to the mainstream. But when was the last time you sat down at not in an airport and watched a half an hour of CNN? I avoid it. Yeah, right. And nobody sits and reads the newspaper all the way through anymore. Yeah. Be because what newspaper do you trust? Well, I'm, I'm not a sheeple. That's why. That's right. You're not a sheeple, Ben. None of us are. Except maybe Adam. 
But if you were to review the film, John. I thought the performance was great. I thought the style didn't really have a have a, a major impact on how good the film was and the story that it told. I thought it told the story excellently. This is absolutely a war film. We see we see sometimes journalists in the background of movies that we're watching. Uh, we'll be following the arc, story arc of a soldier and we'll see somebody in a flak jacket in the background with a camera. Interesting how this film uh, flips that on its, on its head. There are so few soldiers depicted in this film. Rarely any. Yeah. So I agree uh, that this is a great movie and I, 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 my own personal feeling that that war correspondents are not maybe superheroes but are flawed and they're, they're, they're rock stars. And I guess I have a, I have an awful lot of, of feeling about rock stars who die. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and also like, this is, this is maybe the job I wish I had, I had had, and I would be dead now. And you guys would have some other doofus on your podcast. This podcast would suck without you, John. I think you would have made a great war correspondent, but I'm personally glad you didn't go in that direction. Yeah. And I don't mean I don't mean to suggest any kind of I'm not trying to steal any valor and suggest that anything I've ever done is <laughs> Well, your eye patch suggests otherwise, John. <laughs> uh but I will give this movie four gym memberships and the clipped corner of a fifth gym membership so 4.25 gym memberships all right um maybe that kind that they they give you for your keychain the little uh yeah the, the little, little one with bobby the, with the uh with the upc symbol yeah. no i was thinking more that that, that um that she, the the broken gym membership that she used to jimmy a door right <laughs> on her way to uncovering an atrocity yeah john did you have a guy Oh yeah, for sure. I had a guy, my guy, uh, when she, after she's uncovered the killing fields in Iraq and she goes back to the, uh, the hotel where all the journalists are collected and they're all sitting in there under, under emergency lighting, typing away their stories and her, her photographer is there. They're just starting to bond with each other. The, the young cub reporter that she feels competitive with is there. The whole cast of people is there and, Little by little, people fade away. There's a kind of like, well, I'm going to go catch some sleep. And as soon as her photographer, escort, younger sort of um, partner bids goodnight and heads upstairs, she immediately looks across the room and there's a a reporter, a middle-aged, grizzled, you know, white-bearded, guy in a flak jacket sitting across the room and they make eye contact and you can just tell that they've been waiting for everybody else to go away <laughs> because they look at each other instantly and there's just this almost imperceptible look that goes across her face that says like right let's get out of here and it's clear they've known each other for decades that they have slept together in war zones around the world we don't, we're not, it's not revealed who this guy is, but he just is a seasoned combat reporter that she can, like she's just 
uncovered a killing field hours before and they go up to some some dusty hotel room and just go at it she goes to the hotel room with him for comfort but it's there that we understand what her ptsd feels like and how it how it uh, manifests because uh it's not hearing the backfiring of a car that makes her dive for cover or anything like that it's instead visited upon her at times that can't be predicted She's thinking about the things that she's seen as like in the act of lovemaking. And then she's flashing back and forth and forward and backwards in time. And she's experiencing all of these things with him in that room. It's a, it's a depiction of PTSD. I don't feel like we've gotten before. And it was, I thought really affecting. Yeah. It's the moment when she starts to come unglued in front of us. Yeah. Um, but that guy and his, like wolfish smile yeah and that little rendezvous where they both know what the deal is and she has the respect for him to recognize him as a peer and um i'm that guy and he mm-hmm. was my guy and i just uh, of, of anybody in the film i just wanted to be him not because you know because of this one particular um encounter but just like what's his life how many times in this film did you have a smile on your face? I feel like that was one and maybe the only time where like that feeling of like having that connection across the room and it's like, it's on. Yeah. Well, and the, the entire scene, you know, the entire scene up until that point, you are, you you suddenly understand that they are both like, get the fuck out of here. You guys like yeah. everybody clear this room. Yeah. <laughs> like they know, they know the other one is there and they have not, they've made no sign of it. Really cool scene. Yeah. Great. Uh, my guy was Rita, who is Marie's friend, uh, a longtime friend, as depicted in the film. And the thing that made her my guy was that uh, she clearly gets how broken Marie is and also understands her brokenness in such a way that uh, knows that she can't fix it. And so she never makes an attempt uh, at intervention in any way, she sort of uh, softly asserts her power in a, like, are you all right kind of way? Or why don't you come home with me kind of way? She hits her kind of hard in that last, like, when did you become an alcoholic scene? Right. But then she backs off of it. She never goes all the way into, like, tough love and intervention. And I think there's something familiar about that with some people, like... You know that that person needs you too much to risk blowing up the friendship for the sake of like true intervention. And so you are forced to just like be there for them to the degree that that maintains the relationship because that sometimes is the best help that you can provide is just like being there in that way. And I thought like Rita probably was a person who represented a number of people in Marie's life who, who cared, uh, but just could not go the distance in, in risking a friendship to save her. I've seen you do this vis-a-vis Ben's Marxism. Yeah. You tiptoe around it. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to lose the friendship. But well, you're we watching are, it kill him. We are entangled in so many ways. 
Like the, risking right, the a, relationship <laughs> is the least of my problems. You have a it's, shared checking account, right? It's, it's financial at yeah. this point. You're, you're worried that Ben is one day going to give all your money away to the yeah. flack gorillas. Yeah. So, uh, so Rita is my guy. Who's your guy, Ben? My guy is Murad. He's the kind of like fixer and driver that they meet up with when they get to Iraq. And uh, he was my guy just because of uh, kind of that scene where they get all get pulled out of the car and he's like stuck translating for her while she's telling a bunch of lies to the guys with guns. Oh, he's the guy <laughs> in the gym membership scene, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, clearly has a lot of misgivings, but also has to kind of yes and the the put on because if he doesn't, they might all get shot or something. You know, that's basically uh that's basically my role in the in the behind enemy lines Toyota that is this podcast. <laughs> Boy, it is always a Toyota, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, what is up with the Toyota Motor Corporation always selling their pickup trucks to to rebels? <laughs> you know, in the same way that like Peugeot 403s were the taxi cab of Africa yeah. throughout the 70s um or 404s the uh the toyota hilux is the is the rebel pickup for sure i mean it, it's like it's crazy when like the the like four countries i've been into in africa like you see t- hiluxes everywhere and you know i've been fortunate not to see the ones with the <laughs> machine guns mounted in the in the bed of the pickup but like it's just like a normal car that pickup truck should only be used for taking Jennifer to the lake or for Biff to put two coats of wax on. That's the only, that's the only context I want to see that truck. And then, but a million other times you see it as a, uh, as something a machine gun is mounted onto the back of mm-hmm. in a war zone. It's just too bad. Doc, you built a time machine out of a Toyota Hilux? <laughs> I'm sorry, a Peugeot 504. Is the one? Oh man! Is the one that I'm glad we caught that because yeah. uh, <laughs> Ben's such a Peugeot pedant. I'm I'm shocked that got past his goalie. I don't know anything. I I don't care about the the specific model of car, Adam. I care about the stories of the people in the car. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I I care greatly about the story we tell on the next episode. Why don't we figure out uh, what movie we're gonna watch? What is this? Uh, this beautiful little thing you have here in front of me on this table that is my penis i love it but uh, i'm talking about this other green ball it is a 120 sided die John. wow 120 sided die what is that called does it have a name uh it is a 120 sided <laughs> die <laughs> d10 does uh okay well here we are we we have uh we have a 120 sided die i'm gonna build a little cage for it a little box out of Adam's copy of Be Here Now, uh, his best made company first aid kit, uh, the classic Yin Chow uh, blister packet box, my phone, this bottle of indoor plant food. It's a hell of a combination. Now I feel like I can safely roll this die and it won't fall on the floor. Here we go. Here we go. 120 sided die. Okay, there it is. I'm gonna say 32 is the one the, is the one it comes up with. 32 uh, takes us to 
Vietnam. This is a 1989 Brian De Palma film. Casualties of War. John, you added this to the list. Any uh, any thoughts going into it? I added it to the list because I didn't see it at the time. 1989, this movie came out, and I was uh, I was in Europe on my first European walkabout, and I remember it. This is you know post platoon, post born on the Fourth of July, an era of Vietnam films. It had Sean Penn, who was sort of at the peak of his like early career, and then Michael J. Fox in a dramatic role. I remember it. I remember seeing it and thinking that I, on the one hand, I had an obligation to see it, and on the other hand, I was not ready for this. Doc, yeah. you said a war movie <laughs> in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> So I missed it, and I never saw it. I never got it on VHS or anything. This is one of those movies that was on my list of like, oh, I should have seen that. Well, let's see if the VC get away with calling him chicken. Mm. (laughs) Hey, why are you wearing a life preserver? (laughs) All right, well, that will be next week. We'll leave it with Rob's from here. Uh, So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, John Roderick, and Adam Pranica. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you feel like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate. It helps us keep the lights on over here at Friendly Fire. And as an added bonus, you'll get access to our Pork Chop feed, as well as all of the other bonus content on Maximum Fun. If you'd like to share the show online, use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.